As you're being seated, if you will find your Bibles and open it up or turn it on to Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, just let me say how I love hearing your voices sing praises to the Lord. You know, worship is not a spectator sport. Uh, worship is something that you participate in, and I just love it whenever I see here the church singing out praises to God. Uh, as a pastor, there's something that I have begun to pick up on that is a little bit of a troubling pattern. I, I will see people come to church, and I'll see God really work in their life. I often see this with kids that grow up in the church, and you'll see them come to that point of trusting in Christ as Savior and Lord. They're drawing close to the Lord, and you can see the fire of the Holy Spirit burning within them. They are a believer. They are living for Him. But then somewhere in the course of life, something happens that just derails or distracts you in your spiritual growth. It might be a life change. You go off to college and you start changing the schedule and you change everything that is familiar. Perhaps you even start doing some things that in your heart you know you shouldn't and you fall in love with someone or you start dating someone that doesn't share the same values as you do. And before you know it, you find yourself drifting from the things that you know to be true. It might be a difficult moment in life. Perhaps it's a transition point uh, in your parenting, a transition point in your aging. Maybe it's an event that happens like someone that you love dies and you're not really able to fully comprehend why God allowed that. Perhaps it's a layoff at work, maybe a uh, difficult, painful divorce. And you begin to ask this question, does anybody, does God really care about me. Or maybe in life you you start making money and you start having new opportunities and so you begin to have a life quest where you are chasing after stuff and trying to acquire different things that you think will really satisfy or you're chasing after experiences and you want to travel and you want to see this and you want to take in all these experiences and in the quest for these things you begin to stop listening to godly wisdom, and you find your life kind of this never-ending chase. It's almost like eating cotton candy for dinner. Uh, you, you eat it, it tastes good, but then as soon as you eat it, it's gone, and it's like, i got, I got I to gotta try another bite. I, I just never really feel satisfied. Well, this Sunday, we begin looking at Luke chapter 15. If you don't come here every week, we are journeying through the gospel of Luke, looking at Jesus' life and what he taught. And in Luke 15, we have three different parables. All these parables are quite familiar to those that that know the scriptures. Uh, We have the parable of the sheep, the coin, and the lost son. In each of these parables... There's a common denominator. Something is lost. And then after it is lost, there is a real world element. People are dealing with the pain of real life. And then in each parable, we see the joy of reconnection. The joy of discovery whenever the person in the parable begins to realize that God really does care. And so in our parable today, it's going to deal with some 
difficult questions, some deep questions like, does God really care about me? And can I come home to God whenever I've wandered and turned to my own way? So look with me, beginning in Luke chapter 15 and verse 1. The Bible says, All the tax collectors and the sinners were approaching to listen to him. Now, I just want to pause right there at verse 1 because you need to take note of the individuals that were coming to Jesus to listen to him, specifically two different groups, the tax collectors and the sinners. Neither of those groups were made up of individuals that were what we consider church people. These were people that were considered far away from God, that were coming to Jesus to learn from Him and ultimately to believe in Him. My father pastors a church over in the Fort Worth area. He's been there since 1980, and it's really a a rougher part of Fort Worth. And when I was in college, I was the student minister there, and one summer... We started having a lot of kids come to know Christ and become a part of the student ministry. And what was significant is a lot of these kids were in one of the local gangs. These were some rough kids. And they started bringing friends to church as well. And these kids and the friends that they brought, they didn't fit the church profile. And so I decided it would be a great idea to take them to camp. So uh, we load up an entire bus full of these really rough-looking kids, and I never will forget the eyes of the camp directors when my kids got off the bus. It was like they were just like, hmm. It was almost one of those, hmm, isn't this special? Kind of, kind of, kind of moments right there. In fact, uh, Pastor Lash brings a bunch of hoodlums to uh, corrupt our sweet little suburban kids. And I actually, I actually found out later that they they had a meeting to discuss us and how they were going to deal deal with us. Well, Jesus' message was so radical in nature that he began attracting some non-church approved people. Tax collectors were considered to be the ultimate sellouts. They were individuals in that society that had abandoned their own countrymen to go to work for Rome, and in collecting taxes for Rome, they were extorting from their own people so that they could individually become wealthy. They were despised. And then there is this group called the sinners, the spiritual wanderers, those that were considered the fringe of society. They had at some point abandoned the teaching of God. They had left the fold, perhaps because they grew up there in Palestine. They knew something of God, knew something of the Scriptures. But somewhere along the way, they had turned to their own way. And now they were just trying to survive and maybe trying to squeeze a few moments of fun out of a very difficult life. And they had found Jesus and they came to Him to hear. So in verse 2, The Pharisees and the scribes. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're the church people. They're the ones that were teaching in the synagogues, teaching in the temple. They start complaining, and notice what they they complain about. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the church people are absolutely appalled at the individuals that are coming to Jesus. Now, ancient mealtimes 
were a lot like the old high school cafeteria. Those of you that grew up eating in the old high school cafeteria, that was a fun place, wasn't it? Yeah. And you'd get, you, you know, you'd get those deep fried orange burritos. I never realized burritos were supposed to be white. I always thought they were, they were orange because that's what they served at the school, you know. And, and that rectangular pizza. Anybody else grow up with the rectangular pizza? Yeah, and it always had those periodic seeds on it, you know. And you'd eat the rectangular pizza. But one of the things about high school is who you ate lunch with had social ramifications. Because people made conclusions about who you were based upon who you hung out with in the old high school cafeteria. Well, in ancient times, who you ate with had social ramifications. And so Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, and people will start turning their nose up at him. They start being appalled at who he is. Now, the Pharisees are in the story. The Pharisees knew a lot about God. In fact, they were masters of the Scriptures. They knew all sorts of things. They were smart. They were intelligent. By and large, they were successful. They knew all about God, but they knew little about love. They knew little about the love of God. And so they were very critical people. They were very uncaring people. They were kind of like the Christian that nobody wants to be around. Do you realize it's possible for you to know all sorts of things about scriptures and for you to read blogs and listen to podcasts and be able to write and dialogue with anybody at any level of theology to have a massive amount of biblical knowledge, which is not bad. We want you to know the scriptures and we want you to know them well, but it's possible for you to have a lot of Bible knowledge and very little love in your heart. Christianity is not just about what you know, but it's about what you do. It's about who you are. And when we talk about being a disciple and growing in Christ, it's not just about filling your mind with information. It's also about living it out and caring for people and loving people as God loved them. And so Jesus begins to tell a parable. In verse 4, he says, What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it. Now, if you've ever heard this parable before, how many of you have heard the parable of the lost sheep before? If you ever heard the parable before, it's like, of course the shepherd's going to leave the the flock to go after the lost sheep. That's just what shepherds do. And so you think in your mind, well, this is is an easy question. What man among you who has a hundred sheep, loses one of them, won't leave the others in the field and go after the lost sheep? But in Jesus' day, they actually knew something about sheep. And so when Jesus was asking this question, it was a legitimate question. After all, uh, sheep aren't the smartest animal in the world. No one says, hey, you know what? You're smart as a sheep. (laughs) And so somebody might say, well, you know, they're just kind of a dumb sheep. He wandered off. I mean, really, you don't need to chase it. I mean, he just, he made a foolish error the sheep did. Just let it go. Two, sheep are helpless. One sheep leaving the flock and going through the community isn't going to terrorize anybody. Nobody says, hey, hide the small children. Be careful because there's a sheep on the loose. Nobody does that. They make bad mascots. No football team puts a sheep on the side of the helmet because it doesn't scare anybody. You imagine the cheerleaders, give me a bat, bat, you know, just really wouldn't work. 
And so they could have said, well, hey, the sheep just ran away. It's probably gone. It's not going to hurt anybody. Just let it go. Sheep were in abundant supply. You could go down to the Jerusalem Kroger, buy lamb chops for $1.99 a pound. Sorry, vegans, I didn't mean to distress you. But you could do that. It wasn't a big deal. You can spare a sheep. No, no big deal. And so when the, the, Jesus asked this question, uh, he probably could have encountered some objections. After all, there was the business objection. The shepherd shouldn't lose, leave the 99 to chase after the one because if he chases after the one, he, he may lose the 99. There was also the objection of responsibility. The dumb sheep should have known better. It's his own fault. Adulting is hard for sheep these days. Shepherd just needs to show the sheep some tough love, okay? And so it's his own problem. He needs to take responsibility. If the sheep wants to get home, the sheep can come home. They could have said, well, what will people say? If the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one, he's making a strategic executive decision, and he'll probably be uh, second-guessed and criticized, and someone will probably say something mean about him, and so what will people say? Well, all these objections to the idea didn't matter because of one overlying reason, and that is that the shepherd cared about the sheep. God's overwhelming love for us overwhelms our objections. And so the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the lost sheep. Have you ever lost something that really mattered to you? You ever lost something that really mattered to you? When I was six years old, my parents lost me. They, uh, they left me at church. And so... <laughs> Yeah, when I was young, my parents moved a lot, but I always found them. But anyway, uh, but one Sunday they actually, uh, sorry, bad dad joke, but one Sunday they actually left me at church. I have a sister who's 11 years older than, than I am, and so uh, they thought that I had ridden home with her, and I hadn't, and so everybody went home, and it wasn't until uh, they were sitting around the table for lunch, and they looked around and realized that I was not there, that they dawned on them, we've lost our son, and so... Thankfully, they, they found me. Anyway, if you've ever lost a dog, or hopefully not a child, but let's say you've lost a child, then you can relate to the plight of the shepherd. The shepherd is searching frantically. He's, he's calling all the, the sheep shelters. He's, uh, he's getting my wife to post uh, lost sheep pictures on our Facebook page. He, he's, he's searching everywhere looking for this lost sheep. And there is this intense search that goes on. And then we come to verse 5. Now, do you remember how you felt when you found your lost dog? Well, verse 5 says, When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. Now, don't miss verse 7. If you want to understand the parable, you have to catch verse 7. Here's what it's all about. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Here's the whole point of the parable. When one person who has wandered from God repents of sin 
and comes to God. When one sinner experiences salvation, experiences forgiveness, experiences grace, there is rejoicing and celebration in heaven that overwhelms 99 righteous people who know the Scriptures inside and out but have no Christ in their heart. They feel as though they don't need grace. They feel as though they are sufficient on their own. God is looking for the one that will come to Him and humbly receive the grace of Christ. And so you see in verse 5 that the shepherd cares for the wounded sheep. He puts the sheep on his shoulders and he carries him back to the flock. In verse 6, you see that he comes home. The wounded sheep is not put out in the fringe. He's not discarded. He's brought back to the flock. And in verses 6 and 7, you see that there's a party going on. There's a celebration. He, there's gifts. There's a meal. There's family. There's lights. There's music. There's treats. There's apple cider. It's Old Town Christmas. A party's going on because the sheep has returned and that is something to celebrate. Now the lessons from this parable are far-reaching and so let me identify some of the groups of people that were in the parable because I think there's lessons for each. The first is the, the church people. Now a lot of us would fall into that category at various levels. We'd say, okay, yeah, I go to church every week. I'm, I'm a Christian. So what does this parable have to say for church people? Well, I think, first of all, we need to understand that it's okay for you to stand up for your values. In fact, uh, Christians better stand up for our values because if we don't, the freedom to do so may diminish. It's okay for you to stand up for your values. And so you don't need to feel guilty for liking Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. That's okay. You don't need to feel bad for getting into the walk for life, for defending biblical marriage, for defending uh, life in the womb. It's okay for you to be disturbed about some of the things that go on in the world because there are many evil things and many disturbing things happening in the world. Now, there's a couple of traps that Christians are often drawn into. One of those traps is that if I say that I have different values than someone else, then I am saying that I hate them. Number two, if I communicate that something is wrong, then I'm being judgmental. Now, the first is really ludicrous. You can have different values and you can disagree with somebody and not hate them. So that whole argument really is just ridiculous. You can disagree with people and not hate someone while you disagree. But second, let's talk about that. If I communicate that something is wrong, then I'm being judgmental. What does it mean to be judgmental? To be judgmental means that I pronounce consequences and wrath on someone, and it's not within my authority to do so. So when someone does something wrong, it's not within your authority to condemn them to pronounce consequences upon someone. Only God can do that. Now, there might be some times where it is within your authority. If you're the parent, you can be a parent. 
And so whenever your kids do some things that are wrong, you may need to bring a little bit of judgment. You may need to bring some consequences to the actions. Or you may be in a position within society, uh, perhaps within the school district, perhaps law enforcement, whatever it might be, where one of your duties is to bring consequences to behavior. And so there are times where, where you can be judgmental if it's within your authority to do so. Secondly, we are judgmental when we forget that people matter to God. When you begin to strip people of their value, whenever you begin to think that people are just disposable and you forget that every single person is made in the image of God and has value to God, you become judgmental. Thirdly, we become judgmental when we forget that God pursued you while you were still a sinner. Every one of us that has ever received the grace of Jesus Christ has experienced something for which we did not deserve, something that we could not earn. God has given us something that we in no way were worthy of. We are recipients of God's grace. And what a tragedy it is whenever we forget that every one of us are sinners saved by the grace of Christ. Now, I'm, I'm a little fatigued by people saying this line that, that Jesus just loved and that He never pointed out sin because the cross is all about Jesus pointing out sin. Jesus in no way just ignored sin. He didn't hydroplane over it. If you read His stories, He would often tell people, okay, go and sin no more. He did not ignore sin but I want you to catch this. He, he met people where they were, not where they should be. Okay? He met people where they were, not where they should be. And he helped take them to where they needed to be. Salvation is an act of grace. Salvation is not just, hey, you need to behave better. But true salvation will always transform the actions. Salvation changes you inside and out. And so I run into this question from church people a lot, and that is, in, in a world full of tax collectors and sinners, what, what's a Christian to do? How do we respond to the darkness in the world or the evil in the world? What's a Christian to do? Well, let me give you five things that a Christian can do. Number one, focus on the gospel. Focus on the message of Christ. There's a lot of things in the Christian discussion that can get you distracted from the main thing, which is the gospel. Stay focused and centered on the gospel. Number two, embrace the truth of God. And don't let human opinion supersede godly revelation. There will always be human opinion. And human opinion will change from generation to generation. Human opinion these days can change from Week to week. But you need to realize that we stand on some things that are true. And you build your life on that divine truth. And you don't let human opinion shift you or sway you so that you're always just blowing in the winds. Instead, you're like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. But even as you stand for truth, you need to understand something. You will not be able to get everyone to agree with you. There will be people 
that disagree with you. And you can't argue people into Christ. I've tried, believe me. For someone to come to Christ, there has to be a point where the Holy Spirit begins to convict them of their sin and and their heart opens and they come to that point of trusting in Christ as Savior and Lord. You need to know how to communicate your faith, but you also have to trust God. Number three, accept the fact that a changing world does not surprise a sovereign God. God is not up in heaven going, oh my, the internet, I didn't see that coming. That just shocks me. What am I going to do? I, ha- I better start a blog. God's not up in heaven doing that. God's not up in heaven going, you know what? Uh, thousands of people are going to move to the Murphy, Wiley, Saxe area. It's going to become an international community. The telecom sector is going to be there. And I just don't know what I'm going to do. In fact, I think God says, you know what? I'm going to plant a church called Mur- Murphy Road Baptist Church in that area because in the days to come, people are going to come from all over the world to live in that community. And that community is going to need a church that's going to reach cross-culturally and reach out with the gospel so that all the nations might hear. And that church is going to be to begin to discover that all all the nations are literally living right across the street from us. It doesn't surprise a sovereign God when the world begins to change a little bit. Number four, be, be a good steward over what God has given you. I talk about this often. In life, you have this small little realm of responsibility, this small bucket that you really have responsibility over, and you need to do a really good job at managing that for the glory of God. Being a good steward over your own family, your own finances, your own job, that which God has entrusted to you. You have a little bit larger bucket that you may have some influence upon, but usually your influence upon it is minimal. And then there's this huge bucket over here of things that are going on around you that you really have no influence upon, you can't change, there's nothing really you can do about it, and yet it's that big bucket that often ties us up in knots. What do you do with the big bucket? You trust God. That's where faith comes in. You be a good steward over what God has called you to, and you trust God for the things that He hasn't called you to. It's amazing how much anxiety can be drained when we simply focus on what we have rather than all these other things. And then number five, never forget that God is pursuing the lost sheep. Don't lose your heart. No one, no one is beyond the reach of grace. And God is in the business of changing lives, changing hearts. My wife's grandfather, Jack, he was not a nice man. He, he fought in World War II and fought valiantly, and whenever he came home, he pretty well spent the rest of his life dealing with what he had seen in World War II. And he became an alcoholic, and he became a, a mean alcoholic. He was abusive, and he wasn't really the kind of guy that people wanted to be around. But he had a wife that loved him and prayed for him. And year after year, she prayed for him. Most of the folks that knew Jack would say, hey, he's never returning. He's beyond the reach of grace. You don't know what he's done. It's, amazing. it's unbelievable what he's done. But his wife just kept loving him and praying for him. And it wasn't until late in life, in fact, not long before his death, but God opened his heart. And God changed his heart. 
And Jack became a believer in Jesus Christ. And Jack is in heaven today. Because he was never beyond the reach of grace, even when he was a lost sheep. Now, some in the room, if you were honest, you're a lost sheep. You remember the day. You remember when you used to be close to God, when you used to worship, and you had a hunger and thirst for the things of God, but not now. Something's grown cold. You've wandered. I want you to know that though you've wandered, God hasn't let go of you. He's still pursuing you. And one of the lessons of the parable is that it's time to come home. It's time to come home to where you know you need to be. Come home to the truth that will set you free. Return to the grace of God. And come home. Some in the room say, Lash, I, I relate to the sinners and the tax collectors. I've done a lot of wrong things in my life. I can't imagine that this holy, loving God that you speak of could actually love me. If you ever wonder if God cares, look to Bethlehem. God cares enough to send His Son. If you ever wonder if God cares, look to Calvary. God cares enough to shed His blood for your sins. If you ever wonder if God cares, look to the empty tomb. God cares enough to overcome death. If you ever wonder if God cares, look to the sky because God cares enough to send His Son again so that the injustice of this world might be drained and all things might be made new. And look at you here. You're in church today. You know what? You being here says, God hasn't given up on you. You're here for a reason. And the God of the universe has put on his tool belt. And he's going to work in your life. So for the sinner and the tax collector, the lesson to the parable of the parable is the story of the gospel. I think no verse in scripture surmises the gospel quite like John 3.16. Most of us know us, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever... And right there we see the story of the Gospel. I like to frame it around the cross. The idea that God loves. And because God loves, God gave. He gave us the greatest gift imaginable, the gift of His Son. And then He calls us to believe. And whenever we believe, we live. So God loved, God gave, I believe, I live. The story of the gospel. And I just want to ask you this morning, has there ever been a time in your life where you truly trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord? A time where you placed your faith in Him as Savior. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads and Nobody's looking around. The musicians are going to start coming forward to lead us in our season of worship. But as they come forward, everybody else has their head bowed because I want to ask you this question. Is today the day when you need to trust in Christ as Savior and Lord? Is today the day? 
You say, well, Ash, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. This isn't about what you do. It's about what Christ has done. And what he calls you to do is just simply place your faith in him. So right where you are, if there's never been that time where you've trusted in Christ, I invite you to make this your moment. Just call out to God. You may say something like this, Heavenly Father, I have sinned. And I'm turning from that. I I ask for your forgiveness. And this morning I am turning to Christ and I am embracing Jesus Christ as my Lord, as my Savior. And I am opening my heart to a new beginning. And I am praying that you might change me from the inside out so that I may know you and live for you. Father, I want to be that individual that experiences salvation in you. And so, Lord, today I come before you. And I trust you. I trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord. This morning is your moment of salvation. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out, but... I would love to know. I'm a pastor. I live to try to help people grow spiritually. And if today is your moment of salvation, I would just like to know, would you be so kind if today was your day of salvation just to look up at me and let me make eye contact with you? Just look up at me and let me make eye contact with you. I won't embarrass you. I won't call you out. I just want to know. Is today your day? Father, we bow our heads before you and we pray that you might might drain us of arrogance and pride and fill us with faith. May we wear the robe of Christ's grace in such a way that we draw people to the cross. Help us to be mindful that nobody is beyond the reach of grace. And Lord, today we lift up that husband that's not a believer. We lift up that child that has wandered and we Look forward to the day when we rejoice because the lost sheep has come home. And Father, we place our faith in you, trusting you for those things that are beyond our control and celebrating you in all areas of our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we worship. Amen. Let's stand, church. Let's sing. Let's pray. Let's respond to the truth of God.